podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Well, it's finally here. Episode one of the OB1 podcast made possible by Betwinner. And it's with the man himself, the former Chelsea and Nigeria midfielder, John Obi Mikel. John, we've made it. We've made it. Finally, we're here. We're finally here. Starting with the big man, the legend. Uh, yeah. The one and only. JT, John Terry, yeah. absolutely. He is upcoming <laughs> in about five minutes' time. But, John, I guess it's important that I introduce myself to Chris yep. McCarty. Let me just say, John, it's an absolute pleasure. It's a delight. It's an honour to be doing this podcast with Thanks, you. Thanks, Chris. We met five months ago. Five months ago, yeah. He popped into my Literally right here. Well, not in this studio, but the studio right next door. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I, I think ever since then, you know, we've both had a... You know, amazing uh, friendship. And here we are, launching an amazing uh, podcast I am together. excited for this. It, nothing to do with me. This is all you, John, because a lot of people come to me and say, John will be Mikel. He could still be playing. He looks a million pesetas. Why is he not still playing? You're 36 now. 36, yeah. And this is the next chapter in your in Next your chapter, life. yeah. Next chapter. I mean, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, like I've always said, I've had an amazing career, uh, nothing to regret at all. I think sometimes as a player, as a football player, once you start waking up in the morning and you start having doubts, I think it's time to pack it up. But uh, do I miss the game? Of course I miss the game. Do I still want to feel like I still can't play for another two years, three years? I think so. Uh, but at this point in time, I'm, I'm very, very happy retired. Yeah, and you're a family man as well. You're yeah, a father. Yeah. Two beautiful young girls. You've got your hands full. <laughs> I've got my hands full. I've got two beautiful daughters, uh, twins, Ava and Mia. Uh, I mean, they keep me awake at night. So, um, you know, they, uh, they, you know, they're, they're the reason why I wake up every morning now. And I'm so grateful and so happy, uh, to, 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 to do what I do. And I'm really looking forward to this next chapter of my life. So what do our listeners have to look forward to over the course of season one? Well, we've got some big names. I don't want to reveal too many. We've got yeah. a, a big one for episode one. <laughs> we're setting the bar high, but we're going to be joined by an awful lot of your mates. Uh, you, yeah. you said it, uh, a lot of your friends, uh, maybe some of your rivals too. Exactly, some of the yeah. Current yeah. stars of today. Yeah. We've got some big names lined up. We've got some big names lined up. I mean, you can't get any bigger, can't you? With the episode one. Uh, and then, yeah, we, we've still got loads of big names coming. Um, so just tune in and keep what and, and keep listening. Uh, I promise you, we're not going to disappoint you with no. the names and the stories that we have coming up. Uh, it's going to be amazing. It's going to be some untold stories that you've never had before. Um, so yeah, I'm looking forward to this one. And there, there's plenty of opinion. There's plenty of debate. There's plenty of conversation because you know the game, John. You yeah. haven't paid me to say that. You know the game. You've got plenty of opinions as well, and you're going to be giving these opinions. I will for be season one. I will be. I mean, it's going to be. Some, some some of my opinions people are not going to like but um, it is what it is I say what I feel and the truth and that's it's going to be direct it's going to be uh, it's going to be funny it's going to be you know but um, that's just who I am um, I, I, I will say it hope there's no punch ups between <laughs> yourself and myself because of course you bleed blue yeah. Chelsea's in your blood yeah. for my sins I'm a fan of the club that you I should know. have joined John, <laughs> all those years ago Man United so between us 
I think there's going to be a lot of jousting, there's going to be a lot of banter, but we're going to have an awful lot of fun doing this podcast. I'm excited to bring it to the masses. Fingers crossed you guys enjoy it, and it's worth just pointing out we are available at uh, the OB1 podcast, made possible by Betwinner. I want to thank the team at Betwinner. Yeah. You're a brand ambassador, you've been involved with yeah. the guys for a yeah. long time. Yeah. We thank them for their support too. Yeah, they've been amazing. I mean, Betwinner, you, 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 you know, we couldn't find a better, a better partner to, uh, to, to, to be the sponsor of this, uh, of this podcast. They've been absolutely amazing. And we hope we can we we can continue. Uh, we can continue with Betwinner for, for 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 as long as we can uh, because they're a great com- uh, great partner. I hope uh, this will go a long long way together. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, promo code Mikel twelve if you want to avail yourselves of some special offers. Betwinner.com. And of course, it goes without saying. Please, please, folks, do bet responsibly. So Betwinner on board as our partner. We're available on all your usual pla- uh, yes. platforms, podcast platforms. And I'm excited about this. We've got a YouTube channel as well at Obi One Podcast. That is where you can watch every single one of our episodes in their entirety. And as John's already alluded to, episode one, it's the big dog. It's the captain. It's the le- <laughs> legend. It's the leader. Legend. It's the captain. It's the leader. It's the legend. Yeah. It's Mr. John Terry. Mr. John Terry, you can't get any better. And you're a good mate as well. Oh, a very good mate of mine. Uh, you know, with, you know, on and off the pitch, you know, we, um, you know, we have a very good relationship. And ever since we both retired, you know, we've, we've been, you know, chatting to each other, trying to see what is it we, you know, we're doing after football. Obviously, he loves his golf. He plays his <laughs> golf. Uh, so that's what he's doing right now. And I'm into podcasts. So why not? So we, you know, it's going to be big. It's going to be, it's going to be amazing. First episode, you can't get any bigger. Absolutely. You cannot. Right. Do subscribe. Do download uh, us, the OB1 podcast made possible by Betwinner, wherever you get your podcast. Please do give us a five star rating as well. We've got great chances to win. We'll give a lot away an awful lot of prizes over the course of this season as well. So you want to be in it uh, to win it, essentially. Do download us. Have us in your pocket. Take us wherever you go. And fingers crossed, we do entertain and inform you over the course of season one. Right then, John, are you ready for this? Episode one. I am ready. It's John Terry. We're going to be hearing (laughs) from that legend in just a moment. But first... A big thank you to our proud sponsors, Betwinner. This is Mikel Obi, former Super Eagles and Chelsea midfielder, urging you all to sign up with Betwinner. Betwinner is a platform that offers sports betting, casino and games. Also, you stand a chance in getting up to 200% bonus on registration. Remember to bet responsibly. First and foremost, on behalf of me and Obi, obviously he's your, your your big buddy. A massive thank you, JT, for for being episode one of the Obi One podcast, made possible by Betwinner. It's great to see you, John. And you know, I was having a little bit of a laugh and a giggle with Obi earlier, and I was like, "We've got to start this." And I'm going to put this question to you, John Obi. Tell me a story. Tell me your best story about that man, Mr. John Terry. I've got a couple, really. I've got a couple. <laughs> Be, be nice. nice. Be, be nice. <laughs> I, I think I start with the funny one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I probably go with the. With, I probably go with the Champions League final, isn't it? <laughs> Do you still have the shin pads and the boots? <laughs> <laughs> hey, I played the full ninety minutes. <laughs> you know, I think after the finals, we all ran around and everyone was so excited. Everyone was so happy, and then we all looking around and we saw JT come on the pitch. And the captain has said on pitch, and he's got full-on kit, you know, shin pads, boots, everything. Jersey, we're like, what's going on here? 
And he's right on the pitch. And everyone was like so surprised. But I mean, we all understood. I mean, it was JT, obviously. He was excited about the final. And uh, I'm sure you were kicking the balls, you know, kicking everyone and out on the touchline trying to make sure we, you know, we win the we win the final and succeed. So it's, it's funny that because when Didier went up to take it, I'm like this with my with my tracksuit top. But I'm thinking Didier is scoring. So I've got my tracksuit top ready to unzip. And before it's gone in, I think it's unzipped. <laughs> and I'm trying to get my bottoms off as I'm running onto the pitch. It was <laughs> And the shin pads were always in. Were they in for the 90 minutes, John? Shin pads are in the cold lot, mate. It's bad, to be fair. <laughs> what a night that was. I know I've spoken to you in the past about this. Despite the fact that you were not out there yeah. with John Obi and Didi and the rest of the boys, I mean, you kicked every single ball. You headed every single ball that night. Was that the proudest night for you as a Chelsea captain, as a Chelsea player? Yeah, 100%. A, a lot of people ask me what my favourite night in, in my, my Chelsea career. And... That Champions League where I didn't play was the best and most emotional night in the history of, of me playing at the football club. And I say that because I think I would agree as well. The Champions League was such a difficult trophy to win. And we probably won it, Obes, in the year that we was we was probably at our worst. Yeah, I yeah. Uh, I look back at 04, 05, 05, 06, 08, when I missed the penalty, 09, 10, the Barcelona game, the famous penalty incidents. And actually, in 12... We actually beat one of the best sides in it at their home stadium. And you look at the side, it's like it wasn't our strongest team. We had a few injuries and suspensions. And you know what? I just think as a football club and, and our generation of players, we, we really deserve that. And it meant so much to us of missing out from Moscow as well. It was just a really proud night. And I'm so delighted that we managed to do it. Because if I would have retired and we hadn't won the Champions League, I think it would have hurt a lot more. You know, obviously I missed the penalty in Moscow and all of that. And those memories, the bad memories stay with you. So to be able to win it and be there, even though I went through the stresses of, of, of every kick and every header and all of that, it was just a special night. Your best night, Obi. Yeah, my best night for sure. I think uh, before the game, we, we obviously we know, we knew um, players like JT, Frank Lampard, DJ Drop, they were coming to, towards the end of the, the career. So we have to, we had to win that game. Uh, we have to win, we had to win the Champions League final, probably for them and for us as well. But uh, no, it was a great night. Uh, the atmosphere, the game, when the game started, it was a bit tense, a very cagey game. And then they started playing well and then we had to defend. But that's where the, the, the game went all throughout the game. We defended, we counterattacked, we created a bit of chances. But they were on top of us yeah. all throughout the game. Yeah. Uh, but we, uh, we might You look at the penalty miss as well from Robin. Robin misses the penalty. You look back to the quarter final when we lose to Napoli yeah. away. It's like after that, you're thinking there's no way back. And I was injured before the return leg. And on that game, that like me, Didier, Lamps and uh, Branner scored. And I think I oh, credit to you as well. I think that was one of your best games. Yeah, it was. It was. It was. Big players step up in big moments. We had a young... A youngish side like Ryan was playing and, and Obi, you know, when you when you sit there and you watch those games as well, like I played with Obi just in front of me. He done a lot of my dirty work <laughs> in front of me. Obi move left, Obi move right, Obi do this, do that, and it's like he done it. He done it with ease, and it's it's sometimes you step back and you realise how good the players are you played with as well. And I think that night, like I say, was one of his best performances in the Chelsea shirt, which is very iconic and. Very proud for him to, to be able to say that in such a good game. Shin Padgate has uh, John Obi stitched you up with that one, JT. So what's your best story about John Obi? We need the, we need the juicy gossip about the big man. 
You know what I will say though as well. We just bonded, didn't we? You know when you first arrived at the club when you were when you were twenty six. You were we uh, <laughs> you was eighteen actually. <laughs> but just when he first arrived, we, we clicked from from the from day dot, and we got on really well off the pitch. And I think with him playing in front of me as well, so I'm going to be really nice to him and just tell the, the nice side of it. But having I'd obviously had Makaleli before Obi, and when Obi's arrived at the football club, we clicked both on the pitch and off the pitch. And I think that was that was important. We had a few clashes on the pitch as well, and a few arguments. <laughs> over our time but I think the good thing about our generation and us as, as mates when we walked off the pitch it was as like yeah, nothing had happened you know it was we were on there to do a job and we, we would argue we would demand from each other he would shout at me I'd go mad at him <laughs> and it's um, it, it's just those memories that it's after the after the event and after such a long career you, you appreciate and you appreciate the friendships that you've still got today. Do you take that, JT? It's interesting listening to you there saying that, you know, John wasn't scared to, to kind of step up to you, stand up to, to you. As a captain, did you respect that? No, I told him to shut the fuck up. <laughs> 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 no, no, honestly, I, I think it's a little bit, you earn your stripes as you go. So when, when Obi first arrived, Obi was was very quiet, kept himself to himself. And then, and then actually you find your place in the team and you earn your stripes a little bit. You actually show the players around you that you can compete at the level we've been competing at, winning Premier Leagues and a lot of trophies. And I think once you get to that level, you're there. So, And he was a player that done it as well. I, I, I think the only issue I had with players kind of ever retaliating back to me was if they're not doing it or running or working hard or, or doing what they're supposed to do for the team. So... We had, a, we had a really good group and I just think we had a good understanding of each other, didn't we? We demanded an awful lot of each other. Like I say, like some of our training games and the competitiveness of our training was way higher than a Saturday afternoon. So actually, you go from Monday to Friday, our levels were so high and we had some top players. You get to, and this isn't no disrespect to the teams of like Southampton or Bolton, you get to those games and go, this is a doddle. This is easy because our levels have been so high during the week. And, and we trained at such an intensity that it felt like we'd go into those games and it would be like two, three nil first half, it was done. We were talking about going out after and organising our nights out at half time and stuff. It was, uh, it was wicked. <laughs> yeah, no, that was what it was. I think uh, the, training, the training sessions were really, really high level. Uh, I remember you, you know, uh, during whatever it was, seven aside, six aside, um, if you lose a game, you come in the dressing room, you know, even in the treatment room and you're so upset. Everybody could tell you so upset. You're throwing your boots around, you're throwing your milkshake around, you know, your protein shake around. You don't, you don't, you know, you don't want to speak to anybody, but that's how competitiveness we were then. And everybody could understand, okay, JT's upset now because he's lost a seven aside game and not talk. And then when we go into the game on a Saturday afternoon, that's what he demands from us. We have to perform. We have to be there. You've spoken to me at length, John Obi, about the fact that you had to earn the respect of JT, the DDAs, the Franks. It took you, you felt it took you quite a long time to, to really be welcomed in yeah. to the inner circle, didn't yeah. you? No, he did. He did. Obviously, like JT just said, um, it took me. It took it took him a while to you know to end that respect to give me that a little bit of respect you know uh, because you, obviously when you come into Chelsea back you just don't get respect straight away you have to show that you 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 belong here you have to show that you want to play for the club 
you're not just here for the money. You have to show that you love the club and you want to perform. Uh, and who else do you want to uh, show that? Who do you else do you want to demonstrate that to? Except, you know, yeah. he's the guy. Uh, so we, we, you know, we all have to show him that we, we want to be here. Uh, we want to, we love the club like he does. He's Mr. Chelsea. So, so until he gives you that respect, you don't get it from anybody else. And it took me a few years until I, I started performing the way I should perform at the club. Um, until then he didn't give me that, but then credit to him, uh, you know, we became, we became best pals. And like you said, we, there's a lot of screaming on the pitch. Uh, obviously, when you play in front of JT, you know, he's going to push you here and there. You have to do your job, which is something sometimes I'm like, you know, what are you telling me for? And he's like, no, go there, Obi, go there, Obi. So, I mean, uh, that was the fights we had. Chris, right? he, Chris he, was my, he was my neighbor for like four or five years. He didn't invite me to his house once, not once for a coffee or a cup of tea or anything. He's too busy partying. Scandalous. He's too busy partying. It's interesting, John, you know, listening to Obi there talking about the, the standards set at the football club, a story you told me a number of years ago that has really stayed with me. You, you told a wonderful anecdote about making a cup of tea when you were a young boy, and the boys were saying, listen, JT, you don't want to get stuck making the cup of teas. As a YTS player, and you said, no, I do, because Chelsea Football Club needs to be standards right down to making the best cups of tea we possibly can make. Uh, I wonder, JT, who, in your opinion, really is the figurehead for the standards that Chelsea set around that. And, and you can say yourself here, you know, Josie came in. I know you have great respect for Dennis Wise. Who, in your opinion, really is the kind of, the, the, the figurehead for setting the standards that Chelsea had for the best part of two decades? Well, I, th I think me being captain, I would say I'm part of that process for sure. I, I think the good thing we had when Jose was there was that at that period of time, and you don't see it a lot in managers nowadays, he was in charge of the football club from top to bottom. And I think it's really important for the group of players to understand and realise that, that he was in charge, he was signing players, he was getting people sacked if they weren't good enough or up to standard, he was releasing players if they weren't good enough, the stadium was being changed, the dugouts were being moved, every decision was Mourinho's at that time. And when you're a player, that's a powerful thing to have. Nowadays, you don't see it. A lot of managers manage the team and the owners want to manage the players and the training grounds and all of that. We knew and we were very clear in that first year of Mourinho that he was in charge of everything. And as a player, that's really intimidating. So I think when he gives you the licence to manage that group, it's anything on the training pitch and away from the training pitch with Mourinho, the dressing room, the treatment room, the canteen, standards are set and have to be set. And I remember, I remember Mourinho at the time, he'd go up and he liked... <laughs> He liked his, um, his porridge in the mornings quite thick, but I liked my porridge quite runny in the morning. <laughs> so he'd, he'd come up, he'd come up and it would be runny because the chefs are trying to get it right for me. And he'd go, this is a disgrace, it's too thingy. Call the chef out, the chef would be panicking and there need to be two options, thick and uh, runny for, for the players and the staff and make sure we've got options and this. And what it done to the canteen staff just kept everyone on their toes. It made them put two bits of porridge. It sounds really petty and really minimal, but for players, this is our this is our fuel for our training and all of that. He wanted the players and the staff to have the best of everything, and we did under him. And we, we were very lucky with that. So, of course, I take credit with a little bit of that because we see a lot of players over that period of time that have gone on to be, you know, world stars, Kevin De Bruyne, Mo Salah, who at that time 
couldn't come into the level that we were at at the time and train at our level, perform at our level, and ended up going away to get the experience they needed to then get to the levels they've, they've obviously gone to. And those levels were so high. But again, Marino was very much in charge of that. So when I was there, it was Dennis Wise who showed me the way. I'd like to think that when Obi and when the new guys signed, it was like, this is what we do. When we lose, or if we lose or we, we draw a game, it's not, it's not acceptable to come in and be laughing around the training ground Monday and Tuesday after a Saturday's bad performance. It's like, we feel the pain of that and the medical staff have to feel the pain of what we're feeling as well. And that ripples through the whole place. And actually, when you win, the place is the best place to yeah, be. Yeah, from the Monday it to was, Friday. yeah. But if not, if not, it's a fucking horrible place to be because everyone's got the ump, but then it just pushes you as players, as staff, to push a little bit more and, and we had a great relationship with all of our staff. We looked after them both on the pitch and off the pitch. But when things were wrong, they got told it, it was wrong and wasn't good enough, like we got told from our boss. Yeah, I think I think that's something... Uh, do you think that's something that's wrong now? You see them after the day of the game, after the, day of, after the game, and they go on the training ground, and you see they take a video and pictures, and they post it on the, yeah. you know, on the Instagram. And you see the players laughing and joking on the pitch. That never happened when we were there. Is that something you think that's, yeah. that's, that's, that needs to change? Because is it, is, is it just because, okay, they're trying to change the atmosphere of the, of the place to try to create a good atmosphere because the, the results are not coming yet? Or is it something that has changed since from when we I were there? I think it's something that as ex-players and older players, we have to be really careful because we don't want to be labeled dinosaurs in the game. <laughs> but at the same time, at, at the same time, I think I think I, I would agree with that, Obes. I would because it just seems a little bit like. And Chelsea are going through a difficult period at the moment. So actually, there's going to be more bad days than there is probably good at the moment. Like with a lot of other clubs, Man City are dominating and Arsenal are competing with them as well at the moment. So anyone else are kind of you're, you're losing one game every three weeks, which is is then difficult as a manager and a group of players as captain. I often think to myself, right, how would I pick the boys up? we would probably do it differently. We'd probably have a night out or we'd yeah, do, yeah. do a team bonding yeah. or something. But actually, it, it's it's difficult. We don't want to sound like dinosaurs, but there also, there's an acceptance. And I think there's an acceptance within within the building um, of, of, all, of all football clubs. And I see their socials and their individual Instagrams and stuff like that. It's accepted, actually. And I think if I was a supporter, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be too happy with that. But, and also, I think... I think the biggest thing for me is I, I see so many players getting injured, you know, during the week and being out for three or four weeks. I think the levels of training have come off massively to where we were. I spoke earlier about our levels being so high that actually the games felt the games felt really easy. I mean, I was marking Didier Monday to Friday, pretty much. Any, anyone I was coming up against the weekend was nowhere near as good as Didier, but Didier would elbow me, he'd run behind, he'd come short. <laughs> push me, he'd want to argue with me, he'd tower above me. And and these players now, I think, get in the mindset of actually Monday to Friday, let's just look after myself and I maybe won't go full speed, I won't do this. They get to Saturday and they try and accelerate or try and be the player they need to be and their bodies break down. So I, I think there's a couple of bits, mate, but again, we have to be, we have to be careful because the, you know, the players are clearly different now and we see the signs of mental health and all of that. But also... 
I'm not sure the managers are fully in charge of, of everything like they was back in our day. Come on then, JT, be honest. It's interesting that you mentioned Mo Salah and Kevin De Bruyne. You'd probably say on their day, that's the two best players in the Premier League right now. Yeah. Honestly speaking, and, and the question goes to you as well, Joe, yeah. when you watch them back in the day when the standard at Cobham was so high, did you ever envisage that they would go on and achieve what they've achieved? Be honest. Absolutely not. No chance. And, and actually, um, it, it's my it's my one disappointment actually as captain because I go at the time and, and I think I think I adapted over time as captain. So I think I softened the, the later the years went on. I think those early years when those guys were there, I was probably very strong, very disciplined on, on the group and how we done things. Actually, that was probably the first time where they needed probably an arm around their shoulder, a sit down and a discussion of could I have, could I have maybe helped them settle in. So, so actually, from from those two players specifically to the levels they've gone, I'm disappointed in myself as captain, and and I think that that's that's a regret that I have, and I'll never be able to to replace again. I'm delighted that they've gone on to be what they've been, um, but I think. I think on reflection, I would have liked to have adapted, but I, was, I wouldn't have said they would have gone to the levels they've gone to. No, 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 definitely not. But I think it wasn't just you, JT. I think, I think back then we look at their levels as well. Um, I think if you can agree with me, I think Kevin De Bruyne wasn't the best trainer back then. He wasn't the mm. best trainer. He was somebody that, you know, he comes to training, probably just because he wasn't playing that much. You know, he was always head down. He was always angry. He was sobering. He was like, you know, he was like a kid who came to uh, to the playground. And nobody wants to play with him. And I remember, we remember when Samuel Eto had to go at him. They had a, they had a massive uh, fight on the training ground just because he wasn't putting in the effort that Samuel Eto wanted. And they had a massive route on the pitch. Uh, but back then, you know, like like you said, you know, we didn't expect them to 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 be where they are today. But credit to them, they've gone away and they've. They've done what they had to do. They've, you know, they've improved. They've become who they are today, superstars. I mean, when I watch Kevin De Bruyne play today, I'm like, is this same guy? But uh, incredible, you know. absolutely incredible. And, and I think as well, obviously, I went in the coaching at Aston Villa and, and see a different side of how to deal with players, and that, that I did as captain and everything. And I think as they were both wingers, both wide men. I think as a wide player, like I was a defender, you were just in front yeah, of me. Yeah. I think as us, we, we are very robust. Defenders are very robust, holding midfielders. You do your job, you give it to the better yeah. players and you kind of sweep up and you, you do that. I think as wingers, you go from being in the team for five weeks running, you're scoring, all of a sudden you don't score, your confidence goes. I, I mean, look at Joe Cole in, in a similar position. One one week he's there, the next week he's there, the next week he's getting dragged after 20 minutes from, from Mourinho. And I think wingers and strikers are definitely like this as, as individuals yeah. throughout the season. They, they probably need that little bit of care, that little bit of comfort and a little bit of reassurance as well. Whereas I think, like I said, I used to scream and shout at Obi constantly <laughs> on the training pitch and in games. He could deal with it. But with my wingers, I was I was actually as captain, I was a little bit softer, but I'm still disappointed that I didn't kind of give them enough time that they probably needed. You know, they were so unlucky that it was, you know, obviously the boss Mourinho then he, you know, he didn't, you know, he didn't take any prisoners. If you're not doing the job, yeah. he it doesn't matter who you are. He will have a go at you. Uh, I remember the game uh, where he had to go at Mo Salah. I remember that game uh, at halftime and he was in tears. tears. He was in tears. He was crying. And then we thought, okay, he's going to let him back on the pitch. But then he destroyed the kid 
and then he pulled him off. But that's just how he, that's just how, that's just his mentality back then. But now, will, will Mourinho do that? No, I think now he's become older and he's become more mature in the game. He knows how to deal with younger players. He knows how to deal with players a lot more now. So I think that's just how he got the best out of us then. And that's how we were, we were you know, we were successful because of how he wanted us to, to, to play and train and behave as players. On that then, JT, if you see that, you know, Josie, as you say, John Obi took no prisoners. He, he set the standards. Yeah, yeah. Chelsea had to be competing and winning trophies. As a skipper, JT, you see Mo Salah, young boy, new to, to England, new to the Premier League, different culture, kind of break down in that manner. Do you then have to get grab him, take him to one side? Or is that just at Chelsea Football Club? Son, that's the standard. If you're going to be in the corner crying, I'm sorry, you ain't going to make it at this football club. Yeah, no, it's something they got, like when when all players arrive, whether they were foreign or English or whatever that may be, like when Ivanovic signed and stuff like that, Yuri Zerkov, when they didn't speak much of the language, always done like a little, probably like a 20 word document translated in football terms. You know, like simple ones like man on, let it go, one, two, just so they understood. Actually, when we're on the training pitch, they've got the football terminology. So, from that side of it, I, I think I'd done all I can. When those boys first arrived, I would say I'd done all I could to maybe help them settle. I was probably, once we was over the white line on the pitch, I was probably just a little bit too hard on, on them as well. Um, so listen, we, we learned, don't we? I think that now and since I've gone into the coaching side of it, it makes you a better all-rounding. You understand players individually. I spoke about that time at, at Aston Villa in lockdown when... One player wasn't training well, he wasn't performing well, and we were like getting out of the team, getting out of the team. And Dean Smith said to me, he said, Have you spoke to him? Have you sat and had breakfast with him? I was like, No. He was like, Why don't you sit and have breakfast with him? Sat with him, hadn't seen his family for like eight months in lockdown and blah, blah, blah. And there's actually there's a bigger story to it always. And actually, we got that right. We sent him home, we had time at home once people were allowed to go home and see their families. He'd come back a completely different player was brilliant, trained a lot better, was happier, we're in a better space. And that's because I sat down and had time with him. But again, you, we learn along the way, don't we? I, I was 24, 25 when, when Reno first came in and you kind of learn and follow suit a little bit. Your relationship with, with Jose, John O'B, because I've heard stories, you know, that there's, there's one Man United player who will remain nameless. He said he just didn't know where he, he stood with Josie. One day, Josie would be mourning, cuddling him, make him feel 10 feet tall. The next day, he would say to Josie, morning gaffer, and he'd be blanked. And, and he was like, I mean, again, JT's already touched on it. Yeah. Players today are a bit different. What was he like? What was your relationship with, like with the... Well, I mean, you know, uh, Josie, how he was. I mean, um, with, with Mourinho, as long as we win in, uh, <laughs> fine. he's you fine. Yeah, as long as we win in, he's fine. Um, as long as you're playing well, you're his best friend. Uh, everything is going well. As long, as long as everything is going well, you know, you guys are good. But once you lose, once we lose a game or we lose an important game, uh, you remember he used to stay upstairs in his office uh, for like a couple of days, doesn't come down to the training ground, doesn't say a word to anybody. You greet him in the morning, he just walks past you. He doesn't even come to the, to the restaurant in the morning. So you don't see him for like a couple of days until we go back up there on the pitch and win a game. But it just shows that the 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 competition, the standard yeah. that he always wanted us to to be at. We we wow. you know he always wanted us to be our best, perform well in training, come on on a pitch during game times, and perform well and win the game. 
uh, sometimes it becomes a bit too much. And that's why sometimes, you know, there's a bit riff here and there, but, you know, we always find a way to deal with it and manage it, really. I have to say, he, he was and still is the best manager I've, I've ever worked with for me. And he pushed me to levels. I, I'm not sure I, I get to the levels I get to without him, if, if I'm honest. And he, he knew exactly what buttons to press with me. And very much like other players have spoken about, one day you don't know what you're going to get, he'll ignore you. And... You know, other days you get an arm around the shoulder, you get a text message when you're at home, say hello to Tony and the kids for me, missing you guys, you know, see you in the morning, all of that. But just some of the stories, it was that he just pressed my buttons every single day. He, he just drained every last little drop out of me. And I'm so grateful and so lucky to, honestly, to, to have had him as a, as a coach and a manager. But your relationship with him, JT, did, like, were you proper, what I would term as men? Could you fall out? Would you not speak to the guy for, for a few days? Oh my God, I was, I was petrified. But I'm still petrified of him now. If I see him now, I would, honestly, I'd, I would be really nervous. I'd be... I boss how I I'd, I'd be petrified. He makes me nervous. He, he does, doesn't he? Nervous. He does, doesn't he? Yeah, I, he does. <laughs> I, I had to. So he's done a sponsorship deal um, with a, a footwear company, and mate, they're the best shoes ever, right? But you can't get them anywhere in the world. I said to him, so I messaged him saying, "Boss, I'm really uncomfortable sending this, but you couldn't get me a pair of these shoes. I can't get them anywhere." But he was like that. No problem. Send me your address. Two days later, they arrived at the house. You ca I couldn't get him anywhere in the world. I tried, and he, and he sent me two pairs. But, you know, it's, it's those little bits. I, I remember we won the year, at, won the league one year at, at Chelsea, and me and Gaz Kaye would come back pre-season. Um, he, he'd done it on purpose. And at the time, you don't realise why he'd done it, but we'd signed a, a few new big players, and he'd done this possession game where me and Gaz are playing the ball into midfield. And there's no space to play it in midfield, but you have to go through midfield to get in the other third. And me and Gaz are feeding it in. It's getting intercepted. We're conceding goals. And he stops the session and he's like that. So I'm captain. Gaz is vice captain. We just won the league the year before. He's like, see you two. You can fuck off. I'll go and sign Baran <laughs> and I'll go and sign another, another top defender in the world and spend 100 million. And you, I remember you two that, I remember that story on the pitch. <laughs> Honestly, and me and Gaz are like this. Fucking hell, we won the league last year. Oh, we, we couldn't believe it. And I swear, me and Gaz looked at each other and was like, right, game on. <laughs> and I promise you, for the rest of the session, all me and Gaz done was kick absolute lumps out of them. But the level of training went from here to here. The new players went, oh my God, he's just battered the captain and vice captain. He's in charge. And his level went there. And afterwards, he put his arm around me and Gaz walking off the pitch. He went, that's why you're my captain and my vice captain. And we were like, powerful stuff. And at the time, you, you don't realise that. It's only when you step back and you're asking the questions years later, going, why did you do this? Why did you do that? And he was just getting the best out of us. Incredible, really. I know your relationship with him was always, uh, I know sometimes you guys had a little bit of, you know, uh, but it's, you know, you, you could always tell his relationship with Frank was always, you know, was Frank can all, do no wrong. Yeah, Frank can do no wrong with Joseph. <laughs> <laughs> that was his, that was his first son, isn't it? <laughs> but yeah, I mean, no, I mean, he got the best out of everybody. Um, I remember when I first, I've, you know, when I first come to the club, uh, there was a game, a uh, Champions League game against uh, Barcelona. I was at home, so I was late, like completely late. <laughs> so I was at home. I thought the time was. I've, I've always meant to report at the ground about. Was it about 5.30? Remember we used to train the day before the game at the bridge? 
I told my mentor about about four, four thirty. So I was at home and I was just, you know, you know, chilling, relaxing. I was just, you know, watching TV, relaxing. And then I got a phone call from Gaza. I was like, where are you? Where the fuck are you? I'm like, well, I'm home. He's like, what, what, what do you mean at your home? Everybody is in the dressing room waiting for you. The gaffer is going absolutely mad. Where are you? I'm like, what? I thought it was four. It's like, no, get your ass here right now. So I had to get ready, come, just get on the A3 and just zoom to, the, uh, to Stamford Bridge. So I got there. He didn't say a word. He didn't say a word to me. And, and he took me out of the team. And for like a month or so, I didn't get in the yeah, team. Yeah, right, I know. Yeah. I think I told him to make it two months, I said to him. <laughs> I wasn't in the team. <laughs> he like forgot about me. So, yeah. I mean, that was a, that was a standard. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, coming to the club for me, it was, it was, you know, I walked in the dressing room. I saw the likes. I mean, my idols, John Terry, Frank Lampard, uh, Didier Drogba. And I was so nervous. I was shitting myself. Uh, I mean, I could. I, I don't understand how I survived the first few months. For me, it was so, so difficult. It was so tough. Remember when we used to train at uh, Carrington, at the Dome? Yeah. Yeah, it was yeah. absolutely nightmare there. It was cold, it was freezing. I just moved from Africa to London and seeing these guys, my, I couldn't deal with it. I couldn't deal with it. Didier was good as well. Let's not forget how good Didier was. Didier was the African king, he still was the African king. <laughs> I think we had, we had such a powerful group at the time. So Peter Cech, myself and Frank, the spine of the team and Didier. And Didier, like when we signed, obviously, Obi and Kalu yeah. and those guys, like, everyone looked up to Didier. And Didier, it was like he had a whip on all of them. It was like, all the African boys, Didier was like, I've got these, don't worry. It was, um, it, it was special. But Didier was a powerful character in the dressing room. And I, and I think when I look back as well, for any young player coming into, or any player coming into Chelsea, we had some big characters, big personalities in that. Probably seven or eight captains of our national team at the time as well. You know, which, which, which is a powerful thing. So it just goes to show the levels we're at and the levels we, we, and the standards we set, really. And that's the thing, JT. We, we've spoken, uh, John, John Obi and I, about this. You also, that football club signed an awful lot of big players, huge reputations that, let's be frank about it, they didn't hit the heights. You know, Fernando Torres, let, let's go there. Andriy Shevchenko. You know, Hernan Crespo, yeah. I know, was obviously before the Abram, well, Abram Vajira, before Jose came in. But there were some big players... Michael, what, would you include Balak in that? No, I, no, I think Balak. No, 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 I don't think Balak. Yeah, Balak's Balak, done well. Yeah, Balak, Balak, yeah, Balak, yeah, done well. Yeah, yeah. I, ju I just remember a funny story about him. Do you remember the funny story, mate? When he comes in the dressing room <laughs> and he gets changed. I'm not saying. <laughs> what, what does he do? Come on, Jordan. No, mate. What, does he keep, what, come on, what, what does he do? What does he do when Michael Balak changes? He's not coming on the pod. <laughs> He won't be on season two or season three. What does Michael Ballack do? No, nothing, mate. You've got to tell us, though, John Ruby. No, we keep that story. You've got to tell him. You've got to tell him. Come on, what does he do? No, no, no. You remember when he comes in, you know, I mean... Bali was a special character. Bali was somebody, you know, he comes in, he walks in, you know, he's a tall, huge guy, you know, he's got a presence about him as well. Uh, same like JT, Frank, uh, Didier, and all these guys, you know, they tall. Imposing, they, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And he walks in, you know, he, you know, he's, he's, he's jamming, he's straightforward, you know, sometimes he says hello, sometimes he doesn't say hello, <laughs> he just fucks off and walks to his uh, locker, he gets changed. But then he forgets, every time he forgets, his underwear. <laughs> Remember his underwear was always on the floor? 
just by his locker, he leaves it on the floor there. So he puts his clothes, puts his pants, and closes his locker, and it's on the pants on the floor. He just lifts it there, walks off. So every time he comes in, Michael Balak's underwear is on the floor. <laughs> just pick it up and put it in the locker. Oh, yeah, I mean, so. this was every single time. Mate, he was doing it all the time. I can't believe you didn't see it. I, I can't believe I didn't see it. I thought you were going to tell a different story, but I can't believe I didn't, I, I didn't say it because we had good standards in the dress room, so we should have been putting them in the bin. <laughs> yeah, we should have put it in the bin. <laughs> Here's a question, JT. Of all the big names that arrived at the football club, a signing that really excited you more than any other? Um, Torres. Torres was the big one having played against him. Firstly, I was relieved that I didn't have to play against him anymore because he was an absolute nightmare. Um, yeah, he was, uh, over that period, it was, a, it was a big figure. 50 million was a, was a big figure at the time and he was an absolute nuisance to play against. And when he arrived, it was, he seemed really nervous. He seemed really nervous, didn't he? He was quite shy, Obes. He was, um, yeah, it, it, it was a funny one because it just didn't happen for him at all at Chelsea. And listen, I'd seen and played against him. I remember playing against him in the first season he was at Liverpool. And now... In those early days of the Premier League, it was playing against a foreign Spanish guy, give him a little nudge, have a word in his ear. Actually, I'm going to give it you today and let's, let's have it. He turned around to me on the, on the first game I played at Anfield, he turned around and went, let's have it, game on then. I was like, honestly, I was like, shit, I'm in for a game now. <laughs> and I promise you, I promise you, the next 10, 15 minutes, long balls, he was elbowing me, the ball was up the other end of the pitch. He was pulling my shirt. He was he was really annoying. And I thought, fucking hell, fair play to him. And that's why when we signed him, I was honestly, I, I was thinking we're going to dominate the Premier League for the next two or three years with him and our team. And it, it didn't happen for some reason. I don't know what. I don't know whether the pressure's on. It got too much for him. Um, and it's funny, you speak to the guys at Liverpool, they were like, he was never the player that everyone else thought he was, which is really bizarre. But I thought he was an absolute superstar someone who's very quick, direct, scored some unbelievable goals and delighted to have him in our team. And unfortunately, it didn't happen. But again, he was a great lad and settled in well. I think the fans really wanted him to do well. And it's a position in the history of Chelsea now since Didier that we've not really nailed on. Since Didier's left, there's been In no Africa, one. they say the, the number nine shirt or the striker position, you know, at Chelsea has been cursed by Didier Drogba. You know, he's put a curse on it. But... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when you go back to Torres, let, when, when you go back to Torres, do you think it was the injury he had just before coming to Chelsea? Do you think that played a massive part that he couldn't perform yeah. as well as he did for Liverpool just before he left? I think so. He didn't get off the ground running, which is always important for strikers. And he certainly wasn't 100% fit. He had, a, he had a physio with us at Chelsea that was his home physio. And he'd done a lot of, lot of work with um, so it was difficult for him to kind of get to get going. And I think in that first six months, it didn't happen. After that, it was kind of very tough. The confidence were already shot and it was difficult for him. But he'd often, when we were playing away from home, I don't know if you see it a lot, but the, the forwards and the strikers would do shooting into the away goal just before they would go off for the warm-up. Yeah. And he often would just walk away. He wouldn't do the shooting before the game, which was a big sign for me going... Actually, because the fans were taught him if he missed, he would, they would yeah, laugh. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And Didier would be there and Lamps and all the other guys would be shooting. And he decided in the end to actually walk away, walk away from that. 
And that was that was a that was a big one for me thinking, mm, not sure. But again, a great lad, it just didn't happen for him. What about Andrei Shevchenko? Because there's a boy, I remember he scored the hat-trick against Barcelona at Dinamo Kiev, 96, I think it was. Him and Sergei Rebrov uh, up top for Ukraine and, and Kiev. He then gets the move to AC Milan. And a bit like Torres, JT, for a couple of years, you'd probably say Andrei Shevchenko was the best, best striker yeah. in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Chelsea then sign him. And again, he just looked as if he had laid boots on. He, he looked... A, a, a genuine shadow of the player that he was in Italy. Yeah, what a good player was at Italy. Uh, but I think also when you look at Andre, it was a quiet, simple guy. He was uh, very quiet, isn't it? He? he was a quiet guy. He, you yeah. know, he never he never spoke much. Uh, you never get a word out of him. Uh, he does. He didn't socialize enough with the players. He was always on his own. Uh, but a great guy, a lovely, lovely guy. But I think he came to Chelsea when he was what 30, 31, something like that. Yeah. But yeah. you could tell, you know, he was coming towards the, you know, end of his, you know, career, not sharp enough. He wasn't sharp enough. Uh, and also, Can and you also, tell that? Day one in training and you say, yeah, you, yeah, of course. Know? Yeah, of course you could see that because Mourinho straight away was on him because Mourinho straight away was on him during the training. It was like, you know, he could see that he wasn't, you know, up to speed. He wasn't, he wasn't quick enough. He wasn't sharp enough. And, you know, we were all there trying to help him. We were all really behind him trying to help him. But it got, I think it got at some point where even Andre thought that everybody was just against him, wasn't it? He thought the whole play was against him. No, nobody wanted him to perform well because Didier was there. We all behind Didier. There was just something. I think that started playing in his head, you know, he, he, you know, there was so much. And, and, and when you, when you have that as a player and you, you think everybody's against you and you start thinking, okay, shit, I'm up it against here. But then he didn't put the work during training and that really affected him. I think when he yeah. was at Chelsea. I think as well, cause you, you touched on a good point of going, do you know day one? I think as players, when a new manager or new players arrive, the first thing in the conversations are going, oh God, let's see what he's got. And it, you, you're judged very quickly, unfortunately. You come in from that first session going, not sure about that, or actually we've got one here. You know, it's, it, players are very judgmental and you get you get a very short window to impress. And also you're, you're coming in in Didier's shadow, which is also very difficult as well. So again, Sheva was a really, really nice guy. Like Obi said, didn't, didn't socialise, didn't get involved too much away from that, which is sometimes, I think as a player, when it's not going well, um, and Fernando wasn't a big drinker or socialiser or whatever that may be. Uh, I, I remember a couple of early nights though, when, when we were out together, you know, you have a good win in London, you go out and it's like 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning, the lights come on and you look around in the club and go, ah, oh, there's my boys, there's Obi, there's Lance, there's there. And you know, it's, it's those faces. Your boys are always around you. That, <laughs> there's always that one that you don't expect, whether it's, you know, I'm not saying it's N'Golo, but it's, it's a Kante or a Makaleli where you go, oh, I didn't think you'd be out until 3 o'clock in the morning. But it's, it's that you actually see a different side to people and, and all of that. And sometimes if it's not going too well for you on the pitch, you need to maybe get involved a little bit. And we didn't really have that from, from either of those guys. But again, big shoes to fill following Didier. And also, I think with the fans as well, you go from being a the top player at Milan, the fans sing your name. When you arrive, the fans are very much the same as the players. You give us the performances, we'll sing your name. 
Uh, I've got to get, uh, I know, well, John Obi's gone viral over the last few days. I think he's off Eden Hazard's Christmas card list. But you've also said he was the best player. Yeah, you played yeah, with yeah, him. I mean, yeah, he was special. Yeah. Retirement at the age of 32. And, you know, I've got to be honest, I, I, I'm guilty of maybe not giving Eden in, enough credit. I, I always felt that his numbers didn't quite take him to the level of you know, your Cristianos and your Lionels. And of course, no one gets close to those fellas. I actually went away and did a bit of research. I think he had six successive seasons, double figures in goals, double figures in assists. So I probably owe him, owe him an apology because I've gone on my radio show and said, Eden Hazard, not sure. In your opinion, JT, is he one of the best, the best player you played with? Oh, 100%. I think the most gifted and talented players is over in him for sure. I still say the best player in the history of Chelsea is Lance for what he achieved and longevity of it. But I think in, in pure talent, Hazard has to be the, the, the main, main guy. And when you're playing in the team with him and you look around going, who's going to produce a little something here? And there's not many players throughout my career at Chelsea you have that. And we was a top, top side. Ronaldo's and the Messi's can go and do it. Hazard could go and do it. If he wanted to go and score, he could go and score. And I think when you play with him, it probably comes a little bit frustrating because you're going, you can do that for 60 minutes. Just give us 60 minutes today, but it'll give you glimpses of that throughout the game. And, and, and in training, like Kobe said, he's non-existent. He didn't want to know. <laughs> and didn't want to do, didn't want to do tactical work. I remember once one session with, uh, with Jose, I think I've said it before, because we were playing West Ham and we're kind of talking tactics and we're talking about West Ham and Hazard's going, why are we doing stuff about West Ham? Who, who plays for West Ham? <laughs> I, I couldn't name one player. Just give me the ball and I'll, and I'll go and score two goals and we'll win the game. And that was, honestly, that was his mentality. Didn't know any players from the West Ham side. Couldn't yeah. care less about the tactics yeah. they played or how they played. It was like, well, just give me the ball. I'm better than them and I'll go and score a couple of goals. And you know what? It was quite refreshing because we, we would be there like an hour before the game in the dressing room. We'd be getting changed and you would be in your kit and your boots, ready to go out and you're excited. Edam would be like this on his phone, FaceTiming his kids literally five minutes before you go out to warm up. In his tracksuit, trainers, not even changed, you'd be going, Edam, we're out in five minutes. <laughs> Edam, two minutes, we're out. And then he'll start kind of getting changed and he'll be like FaceTiming his kids before he's going out to warm up. And it's like, but it was, um, that, that was the type of player he was, but he was an absolute superstar. Top, top player. I mean, it just shows you what a talent he was. Uh, yeah, I've said it. I mean, you know, this he, you know, he was a guy who comes to training. He, he never tied his, you know, his laces, his boots. He never tied them. He just walks around on the training pitch, his hands <laughs> under his uh, tracks. That's how, yeah, he just, you know, that's how he walks around all throughout the training. But then it comes on a Saturday afternoon and then he just produces magic. But then what do you say to that? What yeah. do you, you, you have yeah. nothing to say. And then he comes in with a, you know, man of the match award and, you know, everybody's happy. He's happy. And then he goes home. Uh, but yeah, what a talent he was. For me, I still say he's the best player. He's, like you say, pure talent. He must be up there, you know. When you're, when you're a group of players and you've got someone like Hazard in your team that's not going to, Ronaldo and Messi may be similar and they're not going to do much tracking back, they're not going to do much defensive work, you actually realise as a group of players are going, we need to, as a 10 players, we need to work a little bit harder because we're not getting much from him. But when, he, when we give him the ball, he's going to give us so much more and we need to all put a little bit more of a shift into to enable our best player to go and perform. 
And that's an acceptance. So we, we spoke earlier about the demand of certain people. When you get to the level of Hazard, Messi and Ronaldo, and I'm putting him in that bracket, is is maybe not there there because of longevity, but talent, I think he's definitely up there. You get an acceptance from the group again. You're special. We allow you not to train well because you know on a Saturday you're going to turn up and perform. He was, he was that good. It's interesting. You use the word special to describe Eden Hazard. And I say this as a football fan, and I mean this sincerely. I think you boys were special. And the reason I say that is, how the hell did you guys continue to set a standard when it's a revolving door of managers? You had Josie for the couple, then Avram Grant comes in, and then it's just pick a mix from there. Yeah. JT's best mate, Andre Villas-Boas, arrives. Is he even better <laughs> mate, Rafa Benitez, gets the job at some point as well. That's I mean, his best mate, though, know, Rafa Benitez. We'll get to Rafa. Uh, definitely his best mate. <laughs> <laughs> That's not going Obi, remember at Man City with Rafa? We played Man City in the cup, right, in the FA Cup. I think it was a quarter-final, actually, and it, it wasn't playing me. So we was at loggerheads. We were arguing on the training pitch, and he was he was leaving me out of the team, leaving me off the bench and everything. But I insisted on travelling with the team and everything. And I was on the bench at Man City. We lost, I think we lost 2-1. But we come in after the game, and he's addressed the group and gone, oh, guys, it doesn't matter. We've got another big game the weekend. And, and at the time, Man City were like this. You could feel Man City were, were doing something. And I just had enough. I was like, fucking, that's, that's accepted. No chance that's yeah, accepted. Yeah. You've accepted us fucking losing to Man City. Oh, we've got another good game. And I'm, I'm up across the dressing room towards him and all the lads are there pulling me back. He's now walking towards me and we're trying to get <laughs> each other. And I was like, no, no, that's not accepted here at Chelsea. Liverpool, that's accepted. Maybe losing at the quarterfinal. But at Chelsea, that's not accepted. And we were just, <laughs> just a funny moment. Yeah, it was a funny, it was a funny guy, wasn't it, uh, Rafa? You never knew where you stand with him. Um, yeah, you play one good game and then the next game you're out. You know, he doesn't tell you why you're out of the team. He doesn't tell you why you're on the bench. Um, but that's that's the most important thing sometimes with players. You know, you need we need communication. Honesty. Honesty. Uh, mm-hmm. When a player is playing well or when a player is not playing well, you must have a com- conversation with the player. How can I help you? What do you need? Or this is the reason why you're not playing. But with Rafa, you never got that. There was no word coming out of him. And sometimes you just you just lost. And that was what we got with Rafa. The last thing I wanted to do is go and have a conversation with him. So I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> This is Mikel Obi, former Super Eagles and Chelsea midfielder, urging you all to sign up with Betwinner. Betwinner is a platform that offers sports betting, casino and games. Also, you stand a chance in getting up to 200% bonus on registration. Remember to bet responsibly. You know, it's interesting, like, we, we've talked to Josie and, and, you know, what made him special. And, and, you know, listen, Pep Guardiola, I think the word genius is banded around too much. He's a genius. Yet there's a fella I don't think gets enough credit, and you've talked to length, John Obi, about this man. Again, another one of your former managers, Carlo Angelotti. I mean, that man's success with the breadth of players that he's had over his career as well, from working with Zizou at Juventus through to that great AC Milan side. He worked with you lads at Chelsea, success at PSG, success at Bayern, two stints at Real Madrid, successful. I mean, what the heck is his special sauce? I saw a quote the other day from Rudiger saying, when it comes to man management, best. Nobody comes close. I, I would agree with that. Carlos, Carlos, man manager, I say Mourinho is the best manager I've had. Carlo is a very close second. And from a man management point of view, he was exceptional. 
the, the, the best I've seen in the game. And I think when you see his longevity and him still performing and managing at the top level and the players of today as well, it just goes to show how right he gets it. And I remember his first his first day at Chelsea, actually. So he'd arrived from Italy. We sat with Ray Walkins. It was me, Lance, Didier and Pete. We sat with him and Carlo. And Carlo was like, listen, I just want to talk about the schedule for pre-season and, and this, as the season progresses. In Italy, we train twice a day and sometimes at five, six o'clock in the afternoon. And now lads are like, oh, no, we don't train yet. Anyway, no, no, um, th- this is why I'm asking. This is why I'm here. I, if you don't do that and you're not happy with that, we won't do it. No problem. But I need, a, I need an hour and 10 minutes on the pitch. We need to get our work in. And what do you do after games? Are you off on Sundays? It, what's, what's family life like in England? Oh, yeah, play Saturday off Sunday with the families. Okay, there will be occasions we're in on Sundays. Tell everyone to bring the kids in. Give the wives a break. And we had Ray Wilkins like manipulating this. Honestly, I've got so many pictures of me and my kids warming down. So we'd play on a Saturday. I'd be running around the pitch warming down. There'd be another group training. And my kids would be doing the warm down. Frank's kids, Didier's kids. We'd be stretching. And I remember one Champions League game. Uh, Carlo, he gives us a little bit of a telling off. And my kids are both sitting on a ball like this. And Carlo's getting mad at a couple of us. My kids are there like that looking up. It's the most amazing picture. But he was he was absolutely first class. Yeah, no, yeah, no. Yeah. On good sessions. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. What a top guy he was. Um, I think... Let's not, let's not forget what a great coach he was either, by the way. Exceptional coach. A sessional coach, exactly. Uh, sessions were really, really good. Um, we used to play, what were we like, 11 aside a lot. We used to play like, you know, big pitch uh, games, seven aside. Really good. Like, like I said, we used to do a lot of full pitch stuff with Carlos, so 11 v 11, which is probably every player's worst nightmare, isn't it, yeah, during the week? Yeah. And Carlo would be like, Carlo would be like, we're doing this for 10, 15 minutes max. And he we'd do that. And he'd go, give me 10, 15 minutes, full concentration. Then we'd do a small tournament or a shooting practice or something. So actually you go, full focus here. Come over there, have a bit of shooting, have your little mini tournament. And then come back with him for 10 more minutes. And it was like focus, a bit of enjoyment. So one for the players, one for him was honestly really good, really good. And and even after games, like he used to come down the back of the bus, him and Ray with a bottle of wine and we'd have a... Yeah, but, but you know like players now so obviously day after a game you'd go in you'd put the big screen on you'd do a debrief of the game often on away games Carlo and Ray would come down the back of the bus and pour the lads a glass of wine if they wanted or have a beer and Carlo would sit at a different table with Ray and go you lost your man at, um, at the corner you'd be like oh yeah and all of a sudden you're having the debrief on the bus on the way home it was really weird at the time we thought we were just having a conversation but actually, Carlo's kind of digging us out a little bit, giving us a pat on the back to certain bits that happened in the game. Really, really clever how how he done it, and he he allowed the team around him. So Paul Clement and Ray Wilkins were were allowed to coach around him as well, which was very important. But I, I come back to it, as good as Carlo is, as good as Josie is, and and you've had a, a goose as well. Of course, you, the the second son you are, John. Yeah, no, no, I was the first son. I was I was the first son when it comes to goose, though. I was the first son. There you go. <laughs> I was the first son. <laughs> I was his first son. Yeah, I was so, his first son. So the boxes, the rondos, Gus used to get in, involved in that. But if Gus was on the outside and Gus gave it away, Obi would like, boss, I'll go in the middle for you. Don't you run about. I'll go and run about for you. It, it was embarrassing. 
<laughs> I was doing it just to get on the just to get in the team, mate. <laughs> now why do you fight every week? <laughs> what a guy though, Goose. Like, so much respect for that man. You know what he did in club football, what he did with South Korea yeah. as well. And he won the FA Cup. Am I right in saying yeah, yeah, FA Cup yeah, against yeah, everything? Yeah, yeah. And then you gave him the guard of honor and he was off. Why did yeah. he not stick around? Well, I don't understand the relationship he had with Roman. I think, uh, I don't know the conversation they both had, but I think it just seems that every time we're not doing well, we've yeah. lost our way. Goose was the guy who comes in and settles the ship and makes sure everybody's back to, you know, we're back to some sort of, you know, normality and everything is calm. And then we start performing a little bit better. And then we end the season a little bit higher than we should have, if he, if he yeah. didn't. And then come the end of the season, we get a, a you know a new manager. But I don't understand why he never stayed. Uh, but every time he came in, it was you know he was always like a father figure to there's us. Good feeling about the place. Yeah, there's right? always a, a good, good feeling. feeling about the place. You know, he knows everybody. After training, he comes in. You know, in the in in the treatment room, talking to the physios, the doctors, the players. A bit of banter with the physios. You know, you could feel it. You know, there was a good feeling around the place and we all enjoyed it you know it was something that we all enjoyed often when managers get sacked or relieved of their duty it's it, you're going for a difficult time as a football club so when, when someone like Gus walks in the building it's a feel good factor again it's the it's it's just perfect for the players he made things very simple he didn't overcomplicate. he didn't want to spend loads of time on tactics and the stuff it was just good fun Good levels, don't be late. The real basics of football, don't be late for training, don't be late for the bus, don't be late for this. Yeah. If, if you're late or you perform badly or you train badly, I'm going to tell you straight to your face. It was very black and white with, with Gus. It was, it was good. You know, I talked earlier about the important individuals for Chelsea Football Club, the, the, the kind of current standards or at least the old standards that were set. Roman Abramovich, your boy's relationship with that fella because, I mean, he was parachuted into that football club. The story's well told. He thought he was buying Spurs. He said, I'm not buying that club. I'll buy this club. And the rest history. Of our generation, I think he was the best owner in the last 20 years in football. And I think what, what he'd done for, not only Chelsea, I think what he'd done for the Premier League, because your team, Man United, were running away <laughs> with it. And, and, and they were dominating for, for a very long time. And he come in, he upset the apple cart a little bit. He actually made teams believe and made us believe that we could go and compete with Man United. And he gave us every single opportunity to be able to do that. So I think not only Chelsea fans, but I think football fans in the Premier League era, he deserves an awful lot of credit. He was, he was incredible as a man, like Obi said, really shy, but would give us players everything or every opportunity to be at our very best. He wanted to make sure that training ground facilities, stadium facilities, the, the Chelsea pitch, the, the spa, the food, everything was at a level that it needed to be at. Never questioned us, uh, wanted to come and ask honest, um, honest and strong questions at times when he sacked managers because I remember a couple of times he came in and pulled all the players together and was like, I'm being made the scapegoat here where actually performances are not being good enough and I need to know reasons why it's not been good enough. And I remember oh, frank conversations in that room of people Having a, having a pop at each other and digging people out when it was tough to do in front of in front of the boss, but all he wanted was the best for that football club, and and he was exceptional. And it's actually really sad what's happened to him because, okay, it, it happens in football; people move on. But 
he was he was such a big character within within the building, and he was the main man in charge as well. Yeah, you said JT to me previously. His knowledge was off the charts. He, that was a man that was hooked into football manager. I think. Yeah, I, I remember, and again, very, very kind of him. He, he gave me his boat for for one summer, and he invited me over to his for for dinner one night. And it's it was midnight in the south of France, and on the TV there was a game in Brazil, and he was like, "Watch this kid." He's unbelievable. This kid, this kid was 17. I've never even heard of the team he was playing for. He said, we're watching him at the moment. And we're watching this game. And I'm like thinking, who on earth is this team? But who on earth is that player? He knew, he knew every single game he wanted to know. All the players across the world. He wanted to try and help the team, help the managers that, that were there and would, would just know everything, wanted to know everything. And I think when, when we was at our best, he was in control of all. Oh of it, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, no, no, no. He was. Um, obviously, you remember when? Obviously, when the his helicopter comes in the training ground, we know, <laughs> we know what's happening. Uh, yeah, someone's going. <laughs> you're just hoping it's not you. <laughs> someone's getting sold. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, what a lovely man he was. Um, obviously, he built the club where the club is today. Um, he's made the club what it yeah. is today. Um, so, full respect to him. Um, what has happened to him, like you said, is, you know, is really sad. Can I ask a personal question here, JT? I'm going to take you back to, I think you've said it, J John Obi's allowed me to ask this question, I think. Uh, you've said it before, your toughest night, Champions League final in Moscow. Did Roman seek you out? What did he say to you? Do you remember that conversation? Yeah, he'd come in the dressing room after the game, actually, and I was, I was in a bad way, as you can imagine, I was crying and stuff, and he just put his arm around me and went, it doesn't matter. Football doesn't matter. It's not a deal and end all. And I've not really heard Roman speak loads, if I'm honest, because he he was very shy. He understood a lot more than he than he did. And it was just just very simple, calming words that it'll happen. Our time will come. And luckily, he was right. Uh, I'm just it, again, it was it was this. We were in Moscow. We were in his town. We had a lot of support yeah. over there as well. I I felt, and and I still feel today. I felt I let him down. That night, missing the missing the final penalty, and, and also letting your teammates down as well. Because after that season as well, we had players leave the football club. That was their one chance to be able to win it, and I had the opportunity as a, as a penalty. But I, I think we touched on it earlier about people being, you know, the mental health side of things. I was in a bad way for a couple of years without even realizing it. So I've obviously managed to get over it. Winning it has certainly helped for sure, and and put it to bed one hundred percent. If, if I didn't have that, I'm not sure how I'd be. I'm generally not sure how I would be. But that night, I remember being in a, in a difficult, difficult place that, that evening because you feel like you let your teammates down. There's nothing worse. And, and it's interesting because I had such a, I, I had a fantastic career and I'm very lucky and very proud of, of what I've won. But it's, it's, it's that one and the trophies that you didn't win that kind of hurt you more than you you remember these ones in the background. Uh, you know, I, I spoke to a Chelsea fan the other day and, and it's obviously top secret that you were going to be on this podcast and I explained, I said, listen, we're getting JT on because I loved having you when we caught up uh, a number of years ago. And he actually said, please, please ask JT this question. I said, right, come on then. I'll jot it down. I'm doing my research. He said, ask JT, was he always destined to take that fifth penalty? Was that JT the captain? Was that JT the man 
his thought process of taking penalty number five. And I think what he was getting at, not to put words into this bloke's mouth, but I think he was getting, what was that JT's ego that put him fifth? Was that just, he'd been practicing penalties all week and he thought to himself, listen, I'm going to take the fifth penalty. John, what was the thinking? Explain that for us if you can. It's actually a really good question. It's something that I've been asked quite a bit, actually, but never actually spoke about on, on any TV show or anything or podcast. But the, the process is that we knew going into that competition the order of penalties. So naturally, you, you come up to big finals or a knockout competition where you know there is a potential to go to penalties. You go through the process of who's taking what and where. Like Didier Munich was always taking the fifth. Didier in Moscow was always taking the fifth penalty. And because... Because Didier gets sent off when he slaps Tevez or whatever he done, that needs to be replaced. I was number six. I was six. Kalu was seven. So that gets shifted down that way. Naturally, I was confident enough to go, yeah, that's fine. And and it's interesting because back then, you used to have to give the ref a note of the order, which can't be changed either. So even if you're thinking that you don't want it, you can't, you can't change, change the order yeah. of that because the ref's kind of got it. And when it's the fifth penalty, the ref looks at me and naturally I'm just going to take it regardless of whether it was to win or whether it was to, to go on to the sixth penalty. Um, yeah, but that's a, that's a really, really interesting question. But listen, I would have loved Didier to take it. <laughs> I would much rather that. And striding towards that ball, if I take you back there, and I know you've said, you know, an emotional, still to this day, I think you get emotional about it. And, and still, I think it probably haunts the, the haunts the dreams at times. Walking to get that ball, I still remember you adjust the captain's armband. You're, you want to look neat. You want to look proper. You want to, to your point, you want to represent Chelsea the right way in taking this, you know, hopefully yeah. for you, the winning penalty. Did you feel confident striding up to it, JT? Did you think to yourself, I've got this? Because every single, forgive me if I'm wrong John Obi every single Chelsea penalty went to Edwin van der Sar's left you all stuck them in there so were you striding up yeah. there knowing where you were going and confident you'd put the ball in the back of the net yeah well obviously, obviously there's a process of that so two weeks out to the Champions League final you, you do the penalty I hadn't missed a penalty in the build up for two weeks and, and that, that's an awful lot of penalties so I was I was confident I'd taken penalties for England before 2004, 2006, whatever that may be, I've taken penalties on the big stage, so it was never a problem. Ideally, I would always allow someone else because I think defenders should be further back, unless you're a David Luiz and, and those type of players that have got a lot of flair. But going into it, when I put the ball down, I know, so I used to take penalties for England and reverse it that way, across the goal. And I know, and I've seen the video, but I know that Rio's behind me, Wayne Rooney's behind me, Gaz Neville, that they've all seen me take penalties in the similar process in tournaments in Portugal. I, I only went that way. I went no other way because you want to perfect it and you want to keep going across the goal. So now I'm going, Van der Sar, as I'm kind of putting the ball down, he's gone that way for every penalty. So two things, it's open and he's going to expect me to go that way. So actually open the body and place it in. And... I look back and go, Carl, would I have rather have missed it the way I was or, or done what I'd done? I think I would have preferred to have done what I'd done, if I'm honest. Yeah. Because you actually understand the situation, there's a full process behind it and and you get a feel for the situation. Now, I think it was the last 10 minutes of the, of the um, extra time, it started pouring down. I, I, used to wear the, I used to wear the biggest studs anyway, so that's no excuse. But I've just slipped on the penalty. I don't know whether it's because we had extra time, my legs were tired, 
I had a bit. Of, I don't know. I really don't know. But we were not supposed to win the Champions League that night. And unfortunately, that falls on me. And I have to live with that. I'm just, honestly, I'm so happy we won it in 2-12 because it, it's made me go, I, I can breathe because I think not having that and letting those Chelsea fans down and Roman would have would have really hurt and, and left me unfulfilled. That's why you can forgive him for the shit <laughs> in 2012, right? <laughs> and, and actually, actually in 2-12, I'm standing there and I'm actually thinking, I'm actually glad I'm not playing here because I would have been absolutely petrified. Now, it didn't go further than the fifth penalty, but if I was there standing on the pitch of number six or number seven or number eight, oh, yeah. I would have been petrified. I was praying. And, and since that day, I, I, took, I took one penalty against Fulham in the, in the Carling Cup that I just wasn't confident going to attack, but I didn't go near a penalty after that. I think we knew that was our last opportunity as well. We knew that was our, as a group, that was our last big opportunity to win the Champions League. Yeah. Can, I, can I pry a little bit? Obviously, JT's inconsolable. How's Nicholas and Elka? Well, I mean... He's forgotten. Everyone's forgotten about Nicholas. You take it all? <laughs> yeah, you take it all. What was an Elka like? Oh, uh, well, you mean as a person? Like, in, in terms of, was he distraught? Like, uh, again, I've got my well, own. Yeah, Nicholas was, Nico was a shy guy as well. Nicholas a bit like Shevchenko. Nicholas is somebody who doesn't speak. He doesn't speak much at all. He, you know, he didn't speak much at all. Uh, with Nico, you never knew what he was thinking. Uh, he doesn't talk to a lot of people. He was just always by himself. So even when he lost the penalty and we come in the dressing room, yeah. you don't know what he's thinking because he's always like that anyway. So he was just sitting there looking at everybody and thinking, what's going on here? Chris, an interesting one for you. I think if, if you ask the football fan that wasn't from that era, who missed the, who missed the deciding penalty for Chelsea, they would say me, yeah. which, isn't, which isn't the case. I missed the fifth penalty and Nico missed the deciding one. But I, I think at the time I was... With the press, certainly, like even in 212 with my, you know, full kit and all of that, I took the full heat of that. And as captain and stuff, I, I took a lot of a lot of heat off Nico, a lot of heat off, you know, uh, who, uh, Ivanovic at the time. Ivanovic was sitting on the crossbar. No one's ever, you know... Oh, yeah, he was sent off, wasn't he? He's around well. Ivanovic <laughs> in their full kit and loads of other players, but that's part of it, isn't it? Yeah, I guess you're right in that regard in, in terms of... It had to fall on you. And, and it's interesting, John, I, I've spoken to a lot of people who know you very well and they all sp speak so highly of you. And, and I can only, you know, speak uh, likewise in terms of the times that we've met. I've always got on really well with you. You're a real straight shooter. And, and That's I wonder, why he's my neighbour. Uh, well, he's your best buddy as well. <laughs> you, you earn his respect quickly. You know, in terms of the public at large, JT, do you think they know you? Have you given them the, the real John Terry? No, definitely not. Definitely not. And it's, Why is that? I, I think I go back to that as well. I'm often, like even still I get it today. Literally last week I was, I was in Waitrose by me and I'm there and he, he, an older lady comes up to me and says, actually you're quite sweet. And I'm like, <laughs> on you. so what, what do you mean? She's like, well actually I've seen you with your kids and you know, and you're polite to the staff and, and I'm like, Surely people don't think I'm going to go on two foot or more, you know. But I, I think when I look back at me as a, as a player, I was I was very much all in. You know, I, I give my heart for Chelsea. I give I give everything for Chelsea Football Club. And at times I look back at some of the games and like I was in the rest phase. I was a little bit loud. I was probably a little bit aggressive and, and all of that. I needed to be at that level to perform at the level I needed to perform at. 
away from the pitch, no, 100% people haven't seen the real the real John Terry. And unfortunately, in today's world, people have a perception and they paint that picture themselves, doesn't they? I, I just, I think on all stories, whether that's football, personal, whatever that may be, there's always two or three sides. There's my side, someone else's side, and there's also somewhere in the middle, I, I often say. And it's, uh, it's interesting because now we're seeing these documentaries of players like Bex's documentary, which is fantastic. You get great insight into him and his life and the family and all of that. And I've been asked in the last two weeks, I've probably been asked four or five times from different companies to do it. Now, half of me wants to do it. And then half of me is actually really scared to put myself out there as well. Um, so it's, it's, it's difficult. It's difficult as a player because, you know, you want to leave this legacy and I'm, I'm loved and idolized by Chelsea fans, but. Obviously, you want to be respected by by football fans that have seen you play, and I, I think if I have that, I'm, I'm at comfort with that. But naturally, you want everyone to like you, of course. Yeah, I don't, no, I, I think for someone who played alongside you for so many years, I don't think. Yeah, of course, you, we needed you to come across that tough and that strong because if we didn't have that, I don't think we would have achieved what we did achieve as a group. Uh, because that's what something that spurred us on. You know, we needed you to be there as a leader to push us, you know, to grab us by the, you know, by the throat, you know, in the dressing room. We had those fights as teammates, you know, we, you know, we lose it in the first half. We, we go back into the dressing room and, the, you know, and we come out in the second half and, you know, we, we're a different team. Yeah. It's because of the fights we had inside the dressing room, the arguments we had between each other, you know, here we walk up to you and say, you need to wake the fuck up. You need to get up. You, you know, what are you doing? You need to play better. You need to do, you need to run. You need to you know, fight for the club. And we all took it well. We took, because we know it was coming from the good place. Because yeah. he wants us to, we want to win. Uh, and that's the, that's the respect we have with each other. You know, there's few, you know, and, and the good thing that I, the, the one thing I know about JT is that, you know, he, you know, he wasn't scared about anybody. You know, if Didier wasn't performing, you know, he will go up to Didier and say, Mike, we need more from you. This is a big game. We need you to wake up. We need more from you. And Didier will say, oh, yeah, okay, fine. Didier goes back you know, on the pitch at the second half and performs better. And then we win the game. But if he wasn't tough enough, you know, we wouldn't have achieved all this thing. So, I mean, uh, I, I wouldn't change anything from the way you, you came out and performed, you know, week in, week out, mate. With that, were you comfortable then being the fall guy? You know, you've said it there, people forget Nicholas and Elka missed the, the, the decisive penalty, John. Do, were you aware that in your role as skipper of Chelsea, protecting these boys, John Obi et al., were you comfortable in that? Was that something that shined with your personality? Did you know you had to take it? No, I think at times, like Mourinho would come out and he'd kind of take the blame for, for certain stuff. So as, as a captain, I, I, I don't feel that, definitely not, for, for the players. It was just something that, that I, like after games we'd lose and stuff and I'd go and speak to the press or actually say I'm not speaking to the press. I'd often, get, and, and these are also little regrets as well you have, you kind of walk out of the dressing room and the press want to speak to you and they're like, John, as captain, you should speak. And then you get into a little argument down, I don't want to fucking speak and all of that. You, you know, you're emotional at the time as well. And I was probably a little bit abrupt at times as well, but I didn't always want to speak. I didn't always feel it was my voice. But at the same time, it was like when we were doing well as well, I'd often go out there as captain and I'd pull the younger ones and go, but you go and speak. You go and, you know, it's, a, it's an easy, it's a comfortable win. It's, this is important for you to go and speak. We've just had a big game with one. You played well. 
go and put yourself out there a little bit. So I tried to educate and push the young players for I'm not saying I didn't want to go and take the heat on certain bits, but I don't think I really felt it at the time, if I'm honest. I've just done what, what I've done. Um, and listen, with a few things both on the pitch and off the pitch, certainly haven't helped myself for sure. You know, I've made mistakes along the way, but you, you learn and grow as an individual, don't you? It's only kind of when you when you haven't got that. So performing in front of 44, 45,000 people at Chelsea or 80,000 at Wembley was my release and my way of going a big two fingers up to everyone that's doubting me, that's questioning me as an individual or player. You can go and perform and, and go and produce that level of performance I was uh, producing. When you retire, you've actually got nothing. You've got no answer to, to anything. You actually sit there and you take punch after punch after punch after punch after punch. And it's difficult. It's really tough because performing in front of thousands of people is, is a buzz that you'll never, you'll never get anywhere close to. I've played in big golf competitions. We played at the bridge recently. It, it's great, but you don't get to those levels that is the big nights in the Champions League when you're in the trench with your mates and with those things. So as a player, it's, it's difficult. And listen, Chris, naturally, you, you want to look back and you want everyone to say they, that they loved you and they liked you. They're not going to. You have rivals in football. But I'd like to say that the normal man in the street or the woman come up and say you were a good player. And you know what? If, if I get that, then I've, I've achieved what I wanted to achieve. Do you still miss that buzz that JT talks about the of Champions course. League night? Of course. I mean, when you stand on the Champions League night, uh, just, yeah, and the music comes on, um, I think that's, as a player, you know, that's that's something you dream of. That's, that's every kid's dream. Um, you know, and, and those cameras go past you. Oh, that, that's it, mate. Uh, I think it just raises... The, the, the emotions and then you get into that emotion of you know okay this is a Champions League game this is not a Premier League this is a Champions League game you have to perform you have to bring out your A game and uh, and, and that's something we did uh, we did at the bridge really really well and a Wednesday night in London after a win is as good enough as a Saturday <laughs> Saturday night yeah Saturday night JT knows I mean we win a game a he big was. game he was he was <laughs> we win. I, used to, I used to say to him you can go out but you need to be back at the latest two o'clock <laughs> <laughs> no, no, those nights were those nights were great. I mean, I don't know what it is now, but I've, I remember those nights. You know, when we win a game and a Saturday night, uh, we fly back. Even if it's Manchester, we played at or, or Liverpool, we take the flight back home to London, and then um, and then everybody's out. And then you see the likes, the players from you know Arsenal, Manchester United, uh, Liverpool. Everybody's in London then, and we all meet you know the Mayfair, the Mayfair area, and everybody's just buzzing. Um, it was it was good, Chris. We, we were honestly we were that good under that first World Mourinho that time. We used to on home games we used to take our clothes for the night yeah. out. After. <laughs> we knew we were going to win, and it was. Mourinho would go go out have a good night with our Sundays off and, and again you, you kind of build a, a friendship and a bond don't you on a Saturday night out with, with friends having a drink and stuff and then actually if you're playing Champions League Tuesday or Wednesday you wouldn't do it um, you, you, you'd always try and do it at the right time when, when you could because it's important as well to get away from that release of it but big nights as well like often after Champions League nights as well on a Wednesday night People used to moan about players going out, but we often went out and didn't even drink. We just went out because we if we went home. Like the buzz of, of playing in front of 45,000 people at Stamford Bridge at eight o'clock at night, you're buzzing, you've had all the sugars because you've eaten and the food you need to get high. It's like you go home, you're not sleeping. You can't sleep at home, yeah. yeah. 
So actually, our excuse was you might as well go out anyway. So. <laughs> and you've said, John Obi, that you'd go out and you'd see the Arsenal players and the Spurs players. Yeah, yeah. You'd have your tables, they'd have theirs. Yeah, exactly. You, you wouldn't mix. No, I wouldn't, well, I wouldn't mix sometimes because obviously, you know, we don't know them that. No, no we do know them, but. The good thing back then is that the rivalry was so, so, so much that we 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 couldn't mix with them. Yeah. Because, you know, an Arsenal player for me was a, you know, was somebody an enemy. I, I, was an enemy, somebody yeah. I didn't want to speak to. Uh, you see him on the pitch, you want to kill him. You want to make sure, you know, we win or they want to win, we want to win. So the rivalry was that, was that uh, bad that, you know, we couldn't say hi to each other. So now when you see the guys on the pitch, even now they even do it on the tunnel, they, you know, they're hugging each other, they're kissing each yeah. other before the oh. game or just after the first half. We never did that, did we? I mean, the rivalry was yeah. so, it was so bad that. We was in LA one year. I think it was, you know, it was his first or second year. I can't remember which year it was, but we was in LA and um, we've had a really good week in training and we're like, the boys, we need a night out. So the older players have kind of got together and we've gone, right, we're going to sneak out. Like midnight, we were going to go out in LA. Um, so we've, we've gone out to this club. We've got in the club, we've got in there and all the young ones are there already. Like that. And we're going, you didn't tell us you were coming out. And they were like, you didn't tell us. But everyone's ended up in the club at the same point and we've all had the same idea and sneaked out and ended up being a really good night. But, and as Captain NJT, you're just like, you know what? The boys need to let their hairs down. I'll just, I'll chalk this up to we're, we're working hard on the training field. We need to, you know, work hard, play hard. Well, I think it's little bits like that. So we trained the following afternoon, actually, and just going, right, we all go home together. So there's no one going individual. But at the same time, we've all got to take responsibility and make sure people get up in the morning. So breakfast was at 10 o'clock. So again, right, Obi, you get Salah up. I'll get Lamps and Didier and those boys up. Just making sure that no one was late. Because if you turn up late, people start asking questions. You get there making sure everyone looks okay and all of that. So you look after your friends and your teammates, don't get the time. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Oh, there's a couple of times. You must have missed training a couple of times, John Obi. Oh, I don't think I've missed training, but of course, a couple of times I've been late for training. But um, yeah, I mean, those were those days. I mean, I remember, you know, uh, if, you, if, if we finish a game uh, and we go on a Saturday night, uh, I remember a few times, you know, players come in the dressing room just straight from, obviously from a nightclub. They come straight from a nightclub to the training ground and they come in so early because training starts at 10. So they come in at probably 8.30 or 9 and they're just sitting there and they're waiting for the training to start. So. I think it's one that, that's, that's definitely the younger ones, right? The older ones are on. No, it's yeah, definitely yeah. the younger ones. I don't want to name names, but yeah. You know, sometimes you come in and you're like, Mate, you stink of booze. Yeah, you yeah. Stink. <laughs> like, and and we've, we've won the day before. You, you're doing the recovery for 10 minutes on the pitch. You're having a swim. But you're like, stay away from the gaffer. <laughs> stay away from the staff. Don't speak to anyone because yeah. I can smell it on you. So you're like giving the players chewing gums on the way out. And like any staff member comes here, you're like getting over your, the younger ones to the back and going, get over there. Get over there. It's like, <laughs> you get Let's yeah, yeah. I know player. Right? I know player who every time, every time he's been out, uh, and the next day in training, they puts on a wet, a wet, a wet jacket, and he's sweating. <laughs> <laughs> and who that? Who is that player? It's not JT. <laughs> no, definitely not me. Definitely not. Is it midfielder? I think I know who. Uh, listen, in all seriousness, and I'm conscious that we've kept you quite a long time already, JT. I, whenever I speak to you, and I get asked this quite a bit, why the heck is John Terry not 
moved into management. You know, with all that you achieved, with the way that you see the game, I know you're a student of the game as well. Obviously, you worked under Dean Smith at Aston Villa. And I actually said this to John earlier today. And I'll say it to you, and I'll be, I'll be, I'll, I'll be very honest with you. When Frank got the gig after Graham Potter, and I'm a huge Graham Potter fan, know him well, uh, I do think in my belief that it, he was he was axed a little too soon. Others will maybe disagree with that. But Frank then comes in, coming off the back of the struggles that he did at Everton. Be honest, JT, did, did you take a phone call? Would you have liked to have taken a phone call to have filled in at that point? I, I didn't take a phone call. Um, would I have 100%? Did, did at the bottom of or the back of my mind think I could get a call with him could be part of that that setup? Yeah, I did actually. I got quite excited by it, but then you know didn't have the conversation with Frank. And listen, he has his team as well, so I fully understand that. But um, I, I think the answer to your question: when I left, when I left Villa, I applied for two or three jobs. Uh, I'd interviewed for uh, Newcastle. I'd interviewed for a couple of others before. Didn't get them, but they were they were really good. Uh, processes for me because you sit in those meetings and you go actually I'm, a, I'm way off this I'm actually glad I didn't get that and then you learn how to then go and you know present within those meetings so I then went okay I'm not going to get a Premier League club I'm not going to get a Championship club let's go League One now initially I didn't go League One because I didn't know much about League One never played there never watched loads but obviously been around it an awful long time and that was my idea for championship because I played in it for the year at Aston Villa, coaching it for a couple of years where I fully understand the schedule and the teams and the players and the round it. Didn't get anywhere near jobs. Applied for two jobs in League One just very quickly and didn't get those jobs. And interestingly enough, both of the owners within those two teams I applied for, the first conversations they had with me was they wanted to play like Man City. And it, it was... It was a little bit of a, okay, that's interesting, but nobody, Chelsea can't perform or play like Man City. And one of them didn't go too well, but another interview was they'd sacked their manager, they were going well in the league and they were overplaying, they were playing out from the back. Like everyone gets obsessed with this playing out from the back and centre-backs receiving the ball in their own six-yard box. Now, for me, I was comfortable on the ball. I wouldn't have wanted the ball in some of the situations that I'd put this presentation together. And I'd identified really in depth. Now, this is my this is my fifth interview at this time. And I promise you, I've never been so prepared for something in my life because I've been turned down and I've put a lot of work and effort into it. And as I'm talking to the owners, it's actually going really well. And I'm thinking, oh my God, I've got this. I've got this job. And the team was sitting third in the league and 100% really got promoted. And then I'd had the conversation of going, then we can start playing a little bit better. We'll, we'll get better players that are more comfortable on the ball, receiving the ball in the box and all of those kind of side of bits. So you kind of buy into their, their philosophy a little bit. Then it was like members of staff. You can only bring one member of staff in. I needed two at the time. I felt like we needed a little bit of coaching. I needed my team around me, which is very important. And, and I, I didn't get the job and I received the phone call just going, actually, just your lack of experience and I, I'd come away from that. I was I, Honestly, I was broken from that. And I was like, what I've achieved, I've not gone in at Premier League or Championship expecting to get jobs. We're talking about League One. That's no disrespect, but I know, and we speak about managers that we had at Chelsea, effectively, and I'm taking a small bit of credit, I've managed players when managers have been there. I've managed people above me. I've managed staff around me when they've not been happy. I've effectively done this job for the last 20 years and it's something I know I'll be really good at. So at the back of me, 
it actually really hurts. I've not been given the opportunity that, that I feel I deserve in today's game. But unfortunately now, I've realised that it's not going to happen. And, and my one dream I had when I left Chelsea and the promise I made to the Chelsea fans was that I'll come back as manager. And unfortunately, I'm never going to get that opportunity to do that, which, which hurts me. And it'll be one of those that are constantly niggle away at the back of my mind. So I've decided in the last year that I'm working back in the academy at Chelsea. I love my role. I'm working with the younger kids. It's a couple of days a week, some days more, some days less. I talk about players' contracts and, and try and help them with the process of that because I've been through all of that. I play quite a bit of golf. <laughs> I, quite a bit. <laughs> I, I support my kids and I'm, you know, both my kids have just started driving now, so I'm not doing the school run anymore. But part of me that I've missed out on for so long was I used to love dropping my kids to school and being part of that process of having those conversations in the car, which I didn't have growing up and being there for my kids. And unfortunately now, I've seen a lot of my friends, Viali being one, recently die very young. I just, I've had to. I'm not saying I've chose this route. I would love to have gone into management, but I've been forced to go. Actually, I'm just going to enjoy myself and my time and manage my time a little bit more. So it hurts me a little bit. Unfortunately for me, for managing, I've not done any coaching for over a year now. And I think the longer that goes, the harder it's going to get. So unfortunately... I'm not going to be involved in in management moving forward. He'd make a great manager. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I thought, yeah, I I definitely think you'll make a great manager, really. Because obviously we all, like you said, when sometimes when managers haven't really managed the players during when we were playing, you were the guy who, even when we had some problems, we came to you with our problems, even on the pitch, outside the pitch, we spoke to you and said, oh, this is something that, you know, that's bothering me. How can you help me with it? And you've always listened. You always listened to us. Uh, and I thought you did that brilliantly. Uh, you know, you took care of us, especially younger players. You were always there for us. Um, so, yeah, I definitely thought you would have, uh, you would have been, you know, a great, great manager because, you know, we all never thought Frank would have been no. a manager because he was a quiet guy. You know, he was a quiet one who always sits there and he never spoke much. Uh, but obviously you were the guy, you were the leader, you know, pushing us in the dressing room, outside on the pitch. So with that attitude, we all thought, okay, JT definitely will become, uh, you know, a great manager. But yeah, I mean, like you say, you have different reasons now why you don't want to do that. And you've touched on your kids as well. I think, yeah. That's, it's interesting, that's you know, because listen, firstly, thanks for, thanks for the words. I, I think it's interesting. It's not my decision, unfortunately. I think other people have made that decision. The, the feedback I've had after all of my presentations and interviews are actually going, you're actually really soft-spoken and completely different to what we expected. Now, again, because I don't know what people expect of me or expect me to go into that room and have a full-blown argument in the presentation or in my interview process, but that certainly tends to be a common theme of, of coming away from stuff going, actually, I really enjoyed talking to you and enjoy talking football and really enjoyed the insight, but you've just not got no experience in, in management, which I get. But how, how is a young manager ever going to get Exactly. that experience without given without given opportunity and yeah that, that that's that's obviously disappointing more so I, I think people thinking that I'm going to be that aggressive or challenge their CEOs or challenge sporting directors I, I often say and think that when, when you're a manager you need everybody on side and when I say everyone I, I fully mean everybody you need the staff involved and fully behind you you need the players to believe in you you need the sporting director finding the best players. You need the owner 
giving you the capacity to go and find and give you the best players. There's no point you working or thinking differently because you'll just have different ideas and different processes and it's not going to happen for you. The easier they make my job as manager, the better I do. The better I do, the better they Absolutely. do. The better we do, the more supporters we get in the stadium and all of that. And I, I just often feel that there's there's a perception of me that I'm unfortunately not going to be able to change. Well, when you look at the new owners at the football club, you know, I go to Graham. Graham was seen as five-year deal, seen as a new era of Chelsea Football Club. We're going to, you know, back a manager for the long haul. We want him to overhaul the playing style. Anyone that's watched Brighton will know, obviously, Roberto De Serbi's getting a lot of praise. There's no doubt in my mind he's built from a foundation that was left by Graham Potter. You know, when you everything that you've said there, John, as a Chelsea fan, first and foremost, that you've got to have everyone inside. When you look back on that and, and his tenure, then into Frank's little interim spell, into Maurizio, has that maybe been the problem that maybe not everyone has been singing from the same hymn sheet? No, maybe not. Maybe not. And I'm away from it. I really am. People often ask me what's going on in the first team building. I'm away from it, Chris, completely. Obi, Obi you know, I'm in the academy building. Since since Potts has come in, he's been excellent with me. Has and since my, since my retirement, he's the only manager that's come and put his arm around me and said, JT, you come over here when you want. And it's the only time since I've retired that I've felt comfortable going across to the first team building and pitching, which will sound really bizarre to anyone. But when you retire, you, you definitely feel feel distant from that. And if you're not welcomed by managers in that process, and, and Frank's not Frank's Frank's a different exception. When Frank was there, obviously I was, you know, get the message, come in when you want and all of that. So Frank's different. He was he was temporary in that time, uh, that second time round for sure. So I'm not including Frank in that, obviously. But it, it becomes difficult because you don't really know what goes on. It seems like we're going through a, a huge transition at the moment. Things are clearly not right. It's going to take an awful lot of time, an awful lot of patience from the supporters. I, abs I absolutely love Poch. Just even the fact that what he's done with me, and I've seen him being, a, being over there and seeing him around the players. He's very hard. He trains very hard. He's very honest with the players. When they need a pat on the back, he gives them a pat on the back. When they need a kick out the backside, he gives them a kick out the backside. But the feeling and the buzz is back in the building. Um, since I've been since I've been backing around it, I don't have much dealings with the new owners at all, if any. Um, they've, they've made that very clear that they'll keep that separate from myself and ex-players and the sporting directors of, of all the guys that are involved there, and, and that's that's fine for me. Like I said, I'm enjoying my role. Um, I'm working with the young kids. I've been through the process they've been through. I sit and talk to families an awful lot. I help these players develop both on and off the pitch. And I watch an awful lot of their games and feedback on the pitch and the training pitch and all of that. So I'm loving my role. Listen, never say never, but at the minute I'm I'm happy enjoying life as well. And you still make the best cups of tea in that place as well, I hope. Yeah. L listen, you, you touched on that earlier. <laughs> when I was younger, it was that we used to have to make cups of tea for the for the older players and everything. And the older players used to say to me, if you get asked to make a cup of tea, make the worst cup of tea you can ever make because you won't get asked again. <laughs> and, oh, you know, me being me, I wanted to make the best cup of tea. And yeah, yeah. It, it was a nightmare because everyone used to ask me to, to make a cup of tea. But it's loads of those bits. I used to do the kit and I used to clean the dressing rooms and stuff like that. I wanted to be the best at laying the kit out that anyone had ever done. And it got noticed by players. The small details get noticed. So you can be the cleaner in the building 
We used to remember Eric Obi, the kit man. Yeah, Eric, yeah, yeah, yeah. Brilliant guy. Very sadly passed away now. He passed and away, he, didn't he? Yeah. He was he was a brilliant, you know, just a great character, but he'd done his job so well. There was a couple of times I had to say to him, mate, it's not good enough to stand. He'd come in the next day being early. And he said to me, Jake, you know, before I retired, he said, JT, you made me a better kit man. And I'm like, this guy was so proud to be Chelsea kit man and our kit man. And I was part of that, what made him a little bit better because I, I showed him how to do things and stuff. And it's those little bits and anecdotes that, that kind of mean the world to you when you're, when you're in and around it. And he talks about standards. Heck of a darts played as well, John Obi, you tell me. Oh, heck of a that. Yeah, definitely. I remember, I remember, when, yeah, I see his laughing. I remember we used to play, I think, yeah, me, him, uh, Makalele, Jeremy Njita, DJ Drogba. How about yeah, Jeremy's so technique? We... Yeah, the worst technique ever. <laughs> he threw a javelin. <laughs> <laughs> he, was like, he used to throw it like spears. He had like spears. He used to throw it. It was terrible. It was, Chris, it was that bad. I used to speak to Marina and just get his wages diverted to mine. <laughs> exactly, there you go. <laughs> so we so we used to come up after training, we used to bat. And then uh, guess what? Guess who guess who wins the bat? Of course he does. <laughs> uh, and then he used to come and come and bring the money on our faces and say, Ah, oh, here you go. I'm gonna take it to Georgie and someone and say, Uncle, Uncle Michaela, Uncle Didier, the, 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 you guys bikes, new bikes <laughs> and stuff. So I mean <laughs> he used to rub it on our faces, but yeah, that was, you know, yeah, that was a standard. I love that. Uh, the, the one question that everyone wants to know, and we had a bit of a laugh about this last week. Be honest now, JT, 100 meter sprint, you versus John Obi. <laughs> who wins the race between you two? He probably would, actually. He probably would. <laughs> has, he, has he told you? <laughs> no, I, I definitely said when it comes to that, I probably will, might just win because obviously we're both not the quickest. And and obviously JT knows that. And, 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 and one thing he mastered uh, is, is his positioning, positioning timing. <laughs> uh, you can talk about anything. You can talk about speed. You can talk about whatever. But at the end of the day, it comes down to the position and the timing. He mastered it 100%. If that ball is coming from the left, from the side, he is always there. He knows where the ball is going to bounce. He knows where to He knows where to be at the right place at the right time. And, you know, he mastered that. So for him, that's why speed wasn't a problem because he knew exactly where to be. So right, uh, that wasn't a problem. If you're telling me John Obi beats you in a race, who the heck do you beat in a race in all your years <laughs> at Chelsea? Billy the Massa, I beat him all the time. <laughs> you know what, mate? I was actually yeah, probably over over long distance, not many. I didn't, I didn't think many. But I tell you what, I get absolutely sorted from my kids on these FIFA cards and games and stuff like that, mate. I look at the pace. I'm sure I'm like a 45 or something. Going hold up, and honestly, it's standard. I tell you, I tell you why I'm so slow. You try carrying all these trophies on your back, mate. It slows you right down. It slows you down. <laughs> Very good, right, I'm very right, uh, Saudi Arabia, there's a lot of rumours about you and the kingdom, I mean, everyone's there, I think John Obi's got his CV in as well, I mean, what, what's the crack? Are, are, is Saudi in your plans in the short, medium to long term? I've been in negotiations with Saudi for a, over a couple of months now, actually, we, we, we're trying to get there, we're trying to agree something, um, again, where I'm either there a little bit more permanent or, you know, or temporarily or consultant or ambassador, whatever that looks like. Um, so we're discussing at the moment I can't really kind of go into too much more detail but we're in discussions and hopefully 
with the team I'm, I'm in talks with, the, the process, it, it, it will happen. It just might not happen overnight, that's all. But I'm excited by what I think what they're doing is incredible over there. And actually, on a couple of my bits, you know, the league are in control of it and they want to make sure things are in the right place and the contracts are correct. So fair play, it sounds like they're, they're looking to get things right. I think they need to obviously get the level of players up, which they're trying to do. Um, but looking at the money they're throwing at people and, you know, the ambitions of it, I think they will get there. I, I truly do. Yeah. I, I think the big thing for them is to get a couple of younger players there. Yeah. I think that's a big move. If you get a couple of younger ones there, it's a big shift in, in the movement side of it. Whether younger players decide to go or not, whether it's right. What, what I will say to any younger player, when you finish at a football club, now... Henderson's taken a bit of stick the other night at the England game, etc. When you finish, and I spent an awful long time at Chelsea, it's done. You don't get you don't get nothing from it. There's there's nothing there. You leave your legacy and that's it. So protect you and your family, and you do what's right for you and your family at that correct time. And that if that means going to Saudi for five years at the age of twenty eight, then then so be it. You do it because it's a, it's a very short career and. Um, yeah, you have to enjoy it while you can. It how, is, mate. How old are you, John? 36. You can still be playing. He doesn't believe me. He doesn't. How old is he? <laughs> <laughs> he's the same as me. He's 42. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, no, he's not. He, we, we played right? we, we played in that Legends game the other night. And honestly, in front, he could still play. I promise you now. Oh, you can still play I in the game. we can all still play. Come on, you 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 won the man of the match. I mean, did you see the goal he scored? I mean, right he, on the 26th minute. He was judging minute. down. Look at him, like around the 26th minute. 26th minute. Yeah, I mean, we can all still yeah. do it. If, yeah. if I if I played now, the defensive line would be on the eight. <laughs> so I, I can't play, but genuinely, he can still play. And I've said this to him: you, you need to you need to play for a couple more years yeah. because. In a couple of years, it'll be too late and you'll be old and fat like yeah, me. Yeah, so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm waiting for him. I'm waiting for him. You're waiting him. for yeah, him. Waiting for watch him. this space. Yeah, John Terry and Saudi yeah. and John Obi might just be linking up with his old buddy again. But JT, it's been nice to catch up with you. It really has. Obviously, uh, working too, on the Obi One podcast with the big man himself. And yeah, you've still not told me an embarrassing story about him. Nah, he's not saying. I can't, man. I'll, I'll, I'll have to message you. I'll have to message you. Right, well, I'll hold you to that. JT, always a pleasure. And your trophy room, the medals, the caps. I mean, that looks like a pretty awesome little setup you've got it there. Does, it does, doesn't it? Yeah. Oh, wow. Look at that. Jesus. Wow. That looks amazing, that. And the caps, is that from, yeah. is that from England? Every time you, yeah, so you get called up. Yeah, so this one, like you can see, I don't know if you can see, that was against Spain. Oh, wow, yeah, yeah, look at that. So every, every time you play, it's like an international game in 2004. You get, obviously, your name in it. It's it's really nice, actually, what you do. When, when you play 100 times, which I didn't do, you get, you get a golden cap, you get a silver one at 50, but just really special to keep, actually, really iconic. Right, answer me this, okay. JT. You ever, I'll get you one. Yeah, <laughs> you ever have a cup of coffee in the morning with a bathrobe on, sticking that hat on and just sit and just... Mate, I often come in here full kit, shin pads, lunch. So. <laughs> Brilliant. Right, John, it's been an absolute pleasure. You're a top man. Thank you so much for joining the Obi-Wan podcast. Been my pleasure. Brilliant. Thanks, Georgie. Thanks, Georgie. Lovely, mate. See you later. Thanks for coming on, man. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks, Georgie. Top, top man. What a guy. 
This is Mikel Obi, former Super Eagles and Chelsea midfielder, urging you all to sign up with Betwinner. Betwinner is a platform that offers sports betting, casino and games. Also, you stand the chance in getting up to 200% bonus on registration. Remember to bet responsibly. There we have it then, John Terry, first guest, episode one of the Obi-Wan podcast made possible by Betwinner. Can I just say, John Obi, well done you. How the heck you managed to land him for episode one? It's all you're doing. He was brilliant. Oh, he was brilliant. Absolutely, absolutely brilliant. I mean, you can't get any better. Uh, I mean, some of the stories there, I mean, it's absolutely amazing. And these are the stories, you know, nobody ever know about, the fans don't know about. And, you know, it's got told here. You can listen to it here, watch it here. I mean, it's absolutely amazing. Amazing. And I'm just conscious for those of you listening and perhaps not watching us on our YouTube channel, his trophy room back in (laughs) Surrey. He's got a big mansion, does JT. Oh, it's a thing of beauty. All the different trophies, the Champions League trophy, the Premier League trophies. Have you got a trophy room to rival that? Well, I do, but it doesn't look as pretty as his one. (laughs) I think he's got a bit, a few more than I do, but uh, yeah, it looks absolutely amazing. I mean, the guy has won everything, hasn't he? He's won everything, and that's why he's, you know, he's he's, um, amazing, amazing, absolutely top. How proud are you of all the medals, John? Do you have them on display? Because I ask so many different footballers, and and some just have them tucked away in a drawer. Do you have yours displayed? I do, I do kind of have them displayed. I did have them kind of displayed, but um, right now, I don't. But, um, I mean, looking back at Jodari's trophy cabinet, I definitely think I'll... You know, I'll go back and try to copy that. Okay, good. I'm yeah. glad. Well, yeah. listen, episode one, I appreciate we've kept you an awful long time for episode one. Tell you what we've done, Johnny boy. We've set the bar high. We have. We for have. episode one. We the have. only way is down or is it up? Where are we off to in episode two? We're still going up. We're still going Upwards. up. Upwards. <laughs> that black book of yours, that contact book of yours. Uh, you've been in touch with an awful lot of your old buddies. I we've have. Got some monster names coming yeah, up. Yeah, some monster names coming up. I mean, I can't wait, uh, you know, for the for, for, for our fans to... to, to to listen and see who's going to be next it's going to be absolutely amazing like I said we're going upwards Um, so just continue to tune in and continue to know who's going to be next Uh, I can't wait absolutely right Obi-Wan Podcast you can follow us across social media I implore you all again do download subscribe wherever you do get your podcasts from Uh, made possible of course by Betwinner we thank them once more but episode one done and dusted it's been a long one we thank you for your company Uh, do rate us as well we always welcome feedback as long as it's good feedback yes John yes exactly good five stars five stars please (laughs) that's all that we want right we're back same time next week we've got another big name not going to reveal all now but let me just tell you if JT was big this fella is on a par from myself and John have yourselves a wonderful week whatever it is that you're up to and we'll catch you again very soon on the Obi-Wan podcast made possible by Betwinner ta-da Podcast Network.